Welcome to episode 223 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop. In this episode, I'm going to do something I rarely do in my journalism, which is interview a good friend. I first met Janet Annesley around 2010 when she was the vice president of communications for CAP, the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers. Over the years, while she was employed in a variety of very interesting jobs, including as Chief of Staff to Canada's Natural Resources Minister, I watched the arc of her career bend towards the energy transition and the climate crisis. Now, as Chief Sustainability Officer for Alberta-based Kowitnak, I always get that wrong, Kowitnak, she'll correct me, trust me. Uh, she has become a leading voice for change within the Canadian oil and gas industry. So, Janet, welcome to Energy Talks. Thank you, Mark. My pleasure to be here. You know, all the conversations we have about energy in Alberta, and I rarely interview. I probably should be interviewing you a lot more, but so my my uh, my uh, apologies for not, uh, because I'm fascinated by, and this is not about your particular job at, at Kuitnock. It's not about, it's, uh, it's the evolution of your thinking as somebody inside the industry, in, inside the system, as it were, the evolution of your industry or your thinking over the last 13 years about energy. So let's start at the beginning when you and I first got acquainted because you came from Shell. You were in PR and Shell Communications in Shell Canada. You went yeah. to CAP. What? How did you perceive, how did you think about energy back in those early days? Well, I, you know, maybe ironically to some, I, I credit uh, Shell uh, for really um, educating me and drawing my awareness to to climate change and uh, the the energy transition, as Shell was in those days looking at investments in in the oil sands as well as ethanol and looking at how to evolve its uh, massive downstream refining and retail business to decarbonize and best serve the needs of its customers. Uh, you know, I began to get into public policy from communications and, you know, really became passionate about climate change. And um, one of the reasons why I initially even went to CAP is because I thought the industry association itself was having, you know, a really hard time even saying the words climate change. And I was heartened when my, my Shell boss actually went over there and I thought that, she, that CAP really needed to develop a coherent position on climate change in order to protect the industry, protect Albertans, but also to be relevant. Yeah, we should mention your your boss at Shell. We're talking about Dave Collier, who uh, is a delightful guy, and and I, I have a lot of respect uh, for Dave, and who now I think is still the chair of the board of directors at the Emissions Reduction uh, Agency or Emissions Reduction in Alberta. Uh, which funds a, any number of sort of clean energy climate related projects. So Dave's still active, just not in the, I don't think in the oil and gas industry, like, like he was, but still uh, kind of a mentor to you. And one of those early uh, folks within the industry who was, I think he told me uh, when he, he took over a cap in 2008, they were already having conversations, you know, industry uh, uh, get togethers where they would talk about, climate change and the and what that meant for the industry going forward. Yes, Dave is is unquestionably one of um, you know my inspirations and has been a strong mentor uh, to me. And uh, he's one of the smartest people that I think you know anyone who knows Dave will just always comes away with the sheer 
sheer appreciation for his intelligence. And his intelligence is marked by listening. He really listens to stakeholders and other people and on climate, you know, to see how he would take in inputs from, you know, be it the CEO is sitting around his boardroom table or talking to governments in British Columbia, in Alberta, talking to NGOs. And there's many NGOs who, you know, have had deep conversations with Dave. Uh, you know, a lot of people um, would, you know, say that they, uh, you know, were happy to fight with CAP in public, but behind the scenes, I think Dave made a big difference by able, he was able to have those trusting conversations over coffee or beer, talk about, you know, really um, what were the barriers to putting in place meaningful climate policy, what was preventing the industry from taking uh, more concrete action and investors from getting behind them. So, you know, he's been a real, I think it'll, it'll come out at some point later in, in life that uh, Dave Collier played a strong role in, in advancing people's thinking on climate change in Canada. I did a story back in uh, a few years ago about meetings that Dave was involved in. Five oil sand CEOs met with five environmental group executive directors starting in September in an Italian restaurant in Calgary. And the idea was that they were going, they had these you know, public differences over climate change and they were going to have, for the first time, they were going to meet and hash these things out and see if they couldn't come to an agreement. Dave was the co-chair representing the industry. Zipporah Berman, well-known environmentalist, was, represented the executive directors. And, and, and the group had these very intense conversations uh, that winter and then into the spring of 2015. And there, you know, they they agreed, basically came to a deal where they said the industry said we'll support carbon pricing, we'll support 100 megaton uh, emission uh, megatons per year emission cap on the oil sands, and we'll support 40 to 45 percent in methane emissions reductions, and and all of that stuff wound up in in the, the 2015 uh, Alberta government's climate plan. Now you were there for part of that. You were still with CAP right at, at that, uh, so. Have you got any insights into how that process evolved and maybe how it affected uh, your thinking? Well, you know, I think the, the process wasn't just in that time period. You know, as you can imagine and appreciate, Dave was having these conversations and building relationships uh, with people in the environmental movement and on all sides of the, the political spectrum for, for years, just because, again, he's, a, he's an interesting, smart guy. And when he hears other people... Uh, with interesting perspectives, it's natural for him to reach out and and to engage with them, and uh, you know the his the, the impact of that also is because he's got the the ear of the CEOs in in Canada and, and in Alberta and around the energy industry table, so he can say, hey, you know there there are there's room here to 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 build agreement on certain areas, and there's going to be areas where it's going to be much harder to build agreement and where we might fundamentally differ. But you've got to manage this as a concrete risk to, to your business because, you know, I'm out there every day in the world seeing that not only just the environmental uh, movement um, is talking about this, policymakers, um, investors, people are truly deeply concerned about climate risk. And, you know, he had to, uh, you know, bring that, that set of solutions back to boardroom tables in Calgary because many companies, you've got for every Shell or BP, um, Total or Suncor, you've got around the table, you've got, you know, 10 other smaller companies who just don't, uh, you know, they're not 
out uh, is externally facing. Um, they're managing their business every day. They're not externally facing on these issues. So he played a key role in, in educating a lot of people around what could pragmatically be done. So, you know, we're still in a, in a, in a phase, I think it's kind of like a soap opera though. We're, you know, having to relearn some lessons from the past. So it's a good, it's a good conversation to have Markham to reflect on how some of those, uh, those, those initiatives were built and just, you know, we shouldn't take them for granted. Speaking of now the consensus that, that emerged from the, uh, or the agreement, I guess the hand, it was a handshake deal that emerged between the oil sand CEOs and the, the Engo executive directors. Uh, then there was the climate, uh, Climate Action Plan that, that then Premier Rachel Notley introduced in November of, of 2015. There were four oil sand CEOs standing behind her on the, the podium, which was a, a historic moment in, in many ways. Then the other shoe dropped, and the CAP hired a different uh, executive director, Tim McMillan. And I would say that there was essentially a backlash against what the oil sand CEOs done. That was not popular in other parts of the, the industry. And there was a very strong reaction to it. And, and we've seen, I think, over the last you know eight years or so since that happened, that the industry in some senses has gone backwards from that 2014-2015 consensus. There's a lot of division in the industry. You know, it's if it's not at the surface, sometimes it's just right below the surface. And I think the idea for many that a, a small group of CEOs would um, ostensibly speak, you know, it, it was a it was an oil sands cap, but you can see how it would naturally, you know, in people's mind extend to other areas of of the economy, if not just the oil and gas industry. And there was, you know, a sense that, you know, hey, they who asked them to speak for us or to make commitments um, on behalf of us, or even, you know, one could say, were they building this consensus on part of all Albertans uh, to, you know, strike a deal with the NGOs that was not part of the kind of quote democratic process. So I think there was a, a backlash to, to that whole concept. Um, and, you know, today the same kind of tensions lie right below the surface about if there's gonna be incentives for things like CCS, or if there's gonna be an oil and gas emissions cap, how exactly will those programs, uh, you know, incentivize or penalize different parts of the oil and gas sector, not just conventional or natural gas and oil sands, but also de depending on the size of the company and the means a company has in order to participate or to defend itself against these programs. So those tensions are always, Mark, right below the surface uh, on all of these issues, you bet. And you had a front row seat for them when you became the chief of staff for Jim Carr, uh, who, after the uh, liberal federal liberal uh, victory in October of 2016, uh, he became Minister of Natural Resources. And here you were uh, sitting across the, the table now from CEOs and companies that you had formerly been on the other side. And from that vantage point, what did the backlash look like? Well, the I think the the companies that I talked to at that time, you know, one, you know, no one was more surprised than me, you know, to be honest, uh, to get the call to um, to to meet Mr. Carr at the time and uh, and to talk with him about the opportunity uh, when he was then um, appointed as minister to to become his chief of staff. And you know what a, a balanced uh, individual he was to take it all in pers into perspective 
and have the CEOs um, come to see him. And I, I helped, I think, advise him and counsel him, given that I, I knew these stakeholders very well. Um, I knew that some of their asks would be, you know, very, very, you know, self-serving. Uh, in other cases, I think they had good points on principle about the equity and fairness of, of programs. And at the time, um, you know, very strong alignment in, in my own mind with what I think, you know, Prime Minister Trudeau had, had been elected on, which was to put carbon uh, pricing into place, a national carbon pricing program. And we did. And I knew that, you know, if not all oil and gas companies would, would support that, that have asked, you know, a good portion of them would and could see that that was the best type of program in order to uh, start you know, providing the market signal to make emissions reductions in their businesses. And then you know, I think there was also the strong view that some of these projects that you know, recall those days, 2015, we had, we had Pacific Northwest LNG, we had the Trans Mountain Expansion, Line 3, Northern Gateway, Keystone, Energy East, all of these were in the headlines daily. And there was a sense of growing frustration, of course, in Alberta that the federal government couldn't get any decisions made. So um, I think Prime Minister Trudeau and the team, you know, said quickly, we have to take these decisions because not only we can't just be seen to be putting a price on carbon, we actually also have to be growing the economy. And very meaningful to them, truly meaningful to them, was the jobs that all these projects provide. Um, and, you know, right now, I think we're, we're reaping the rewards of, of those project decisions back in in 2015 and 2016 with the construction we see on TMX, um, the coastal gas link, um, you know, LNG Canada that didn't come through the federal process, but you know, BC in particular has benefited by thousands and thousands of jobs. And uh, the Western Canadian economy will benefit, not just, you know, people will gripe about the overruns on TMX and what has resulted there, but you know, it is truly a nation building project. And I think people forget that um, that was all brought forward because we did actually carbon pricing. Uh, the two go hand in hand. Uh, in my question to you, I mentioned that the Liberals were elected in October of 2016, and that's not correct. It was October of 2015, so my mistake. Um, one of as the Liberals uh, rolled out their policy, and I think there, there's been a very deliberate process. At the federal level, uh, there have been lots of consultations. There have been uh, policy initiatives advanced, like the the clean fuel regulation. The uh, now we're talking about an oil and gas emissions cap. But at the federal level, uh, it takes a it takes much longer to get federal policy done because you have so many more stakeholders than you do, say, if you're just in Alberta. And and but there's been a, a suite of climate and energy policies, quite a big suite, uh, rolled out over the, since, since the, uh, you know, around 2016, you were with uh, Jim Carr for, for two years. And then you went back into, into the industry after a while. What has been the reaction in the industry to this growing policy approach uh, to reducing emissions, particularly within the oil and gas sector, which we should point out is is twenty six percent of Canada's national uh, GHG emissions. Yeah, you know we're we're at a point where I think you know people are frustrated with 
carbon pricing, that it is a program that's definitely necessary. Uh, but in, in terms of reaching Canada's stated climate goals, it's not sufficient. Um, other actions are needed. And uh, in specifically, the government has said, we're going to bring out, you know, the regulatory toolkit here, and we're going to start to look at specific sectors, uh, electricity and oil and gas, cheap among them, probably, you know, that we hear uh, in the headlines these days. And, you know, there needs to be greater dialogue. This is a time when we need more, less fighting, more meaningful conversations about what those challenges are to achieving those goals, because regulating and uh, in, in creating a whole bunch of you know, unintended consequences on things like power prices. You saw the affordability concerns already coming from Atlantic Canada back to um, Ottawa through their Atlantic caucus loud and clear. We're hearing the same thing from Alberta and Saskatchewan. I've heard from a few people here in Alberta about you know, their power bill last month. And you know, we've got, that's another you know, uh, distinct set of um, uh, uh, dynamics that has created that. But, you know, I think the idea that we, we need to do something to accelerate emissions reductions is fine, but uh, we have to have the pragmatic conversations ultimately, or those things will fail. So, you know, people don't like the mushy middle, um, uh, you know, the, the idea that you're kind of, you know, not on one side or, or the other sometimes between oil and gas and climate, but the solutions are in the mushy, mushy middle, middle. And that's where all the, the hard work and the detail about finding some of these opportunities exists. So when you hear about companies doing innovative things and you know you think, oh, that's just sort of you know fiddling while Rome burns, you know, that might be true in some way, and that's good to push people. But on the other hand, you know, you should thank the the, the people who worked on those uh, initiatives to say, yeah, you know, they did something. They actually got something done. And uh, we need to actually do that, Markham. We need to get some, can I swear on your podcast? We need to get some shit done. Oh, if that's if that's the strongest thing you're going to say in this podcast, you're forgiven. Uh, we don't we don't do it a lot, you know. We're we're uh, I interview experts and we we like rational, thoughtful discussion, but you know, the odd f bomb gets thrown. It's okay, you know. Sometimes yeah. you have to punctuate, you know, those, those kinds of conversations with a little bit of a little bit of passion, a little bit. Well, of and that's and the passion is there. You know, there's I think it's been a remarkable change that people are passionate about carbon capture and how do we, you know, the argument is now on the CER or is it 60% capture or is it 95? Like, isn't that a great thing that we're having that conversation versus we can't do this at all? Um, so let's talk about how do we get from 60% capture to 95 and, and then get some shit done, get some carbon capture and storage facilities at a pilot stage up and running try to see what we can do, get some investment coming into the sector um, so that we have a chance of re reaching. I, I, I personally am pessimistic about our 2035 targets, but reaching our 2050 targets are still possible if we start taking action now. I think one of the reasons why people like me are skeptical, and let's let's be, be frank about it, I beat up on your industry all the time. And, I, and the reason I do is because uh, more often than not, the spokespeople for your industry, their CEOs, they, the Pathways Alliance, which is the oil sands uh, industry's new trade association, and there's CAP, and there's also generally tends to to the vibes are anti climate change, anti energy transition. 
And now they've climbed on this new slow energy transition narrative that was very prominent at the 24th World Petroleum Con Congress that I reported on. It was in Calgary in September. And, you know, you see Saudi Aramco and ExxonMobil, their CEOs were front and center promoting this. And, and uh, Alberta Premier Danielle Smith was out, you know, we're going to have oil demand, oil consumption is going to increase out to 2045, and then we're going to have 116 million barrels a day of, of demand, and we need to basically slow roll all of you know the policy initiatives. I mean that that's it's a pushback against governments that are they think are pushing too hard, and that gets a lot of the press, mm -hmm. and 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 the the kind of moderate progressive uh, view of the folks within the industry that you represent gets very little press. You're a journalist. You should know why that gets pressed because it's conflict, and it's it's much more interesting to have people disagreeing than um, than thinking about you know how do we actually get get this done. And I think the the some people in the industry are deeply cynical. Um, you know they're tired of being beat up on for what they feel is delivering a necessary uh, suite of products to Canadians and and the world every day. They feel like they've been made the villain of of the world. Um, but, you know, that kind of um, victim mentality uh, does very little for me when I think, you know, uh, they're also getting benefits from what they do quite clearly. And there is almost a, a deep sense of almost um, cynicism. You know, you look at where the industry is right now in um, hugely profitable doing, um, you know, now with their free cash flow uh, coming into these companies and you know, billions and billions of dollars. I Someone quoted some statistics to me yesterday about the share buybacks, the increases in dividends. The one place it's not going, however, is reinvestment either into the conventional sector or to grow their production in places like Alberta or Canada, or, you know, uh, I think the U.S. stats are similar. Um, but it's also not going into lower carbon forms of energy or into clean tech solutions to decarbonize. And they want um, really, you know, uh, they think they can do it, but they can only do it if if other people help pay for it. And that's where, you know, to quote Ron Paul, you know, someone has to ask the question, is it really the role of Main Street to bail out Wall Street? And how do you actually uh, price in climate risks into their business model so that they will take actions? Yes, there should be some support and incentives, but what is the balance of, of, of that between the taxpayer and industry? When I was doing part two of the unethical oil investigative series, and it was uh, it concerned with conventional, I'm, I'm working on part three now, which is the oil sands mining. But one thing I learned that I was quite surprised, and you for a time were a senior vice president uh, with Husky Energy before it was uh, uh, acquired or merged with Synovus Energy. And, and and a former colleague of yours, Will Ratliff, who works yeah. in environmental liability uh, in the industry, yeah. along with um, Dan Wicklum, who was the former head of the CEO of CASIA, the Canadian Oil Sands uh, in, uh, Innovation Initiative. Both of them told me that when, uh, you know, you're sitting around the table at these big companies and budgets are brought forward, all of the departments bring forth their budgets, and the ones that deal with environmental liabilities and greenhouse gas emissions reductions, the attitude is, if we're going to allocate capital to that, we have to have a positive return. Mm 
we're not investing, we're not allocating capital to anything that doesn't provide a positive return. Well, greenhouse gas emissions, reducing them, doesn't provide a positive return. Reclaiming old wells or putting, you know, working on uh, or tailings pond reclamation does not have a positive return. And so the companies have cut back, uh, they, 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 they allocate capital in other in other areas other than that. And they they kind of have neglected their environmental liabilities and their GHG reductions and they're under a lot of pressure from investors to, to do that because they need to they need to give all this cash, 75% of their free cash flow back to investors. Mm -hmm. You sat at the table mm -hmm. with Husky while those conversations were going on. Have I got it right? Um in essence, yeah, I think there's, you know, Husky was a, you know, a special beast because it was 70% uh, controlled by um, uh, the Lee family out of Hong Kong, and they have a, a longer term, I think, perspective and, and, a, and a different perspective sometimes. So, you know, our conversations uh, at Husky were maybe a little bit different, but I think you've, in essence, hit the hit the nail on the head that there's a real, um, there's a real short term ism. Um, among investors. Uh, so if truly um, people believe that oil and gas demand is growing uh, and truly believe that um, the Canadian barrel is the best barrel and best able to compete not only in domestic markets, but in those international markets where, where we have access, then they should be looking to, to grow production and to put themselves in a position to make sure that their products are acceptable within those markets and are going to be resilient against things like border uh, uh, carbon tax adjustments or, um, you know, carbon pricing, scope three emissions, carbon pricing, uh, those types of things, um, and, and reinvesting to make that so. Um, giving your money back to investors is a signal that investors would rather have it back in their own pockets so they can do something different with it that is not, does not involve your business. That's the message. And I don't think that's exactly resonating or has hit home. And the worry, the bigger worry you touched on is that any liabilities that are left and pushed in the future, into the future need to be dealt with because, you know, I'm a lifelong Albertan. I'm passionate about my province, my country and the next generations, and they should not be burdened uh, with abandoned wells or tailings ponds or um, other liabilities. Because oh, believe me, in, the, in our series, uh, I have addressed that in big 60 point font. Uh, there's no, and the and I, I guess in here again is your inside insider knowledge of the industry. I argue that that the intent of the of the management teams of these companies can be inferred by where they allocate capital. You know, money talks, bullshit walks, right? And the fair inference, the argument can be made that based on where they're allocating capital, they have no intention of funding the cleanup of those environmental liabilities, which depending on the estimate, I use the, 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 the number of $300 billion uh, industry-wide just in Alberta. And, but you've been on the inside. So it, it, what do you think of that argument? Well, you know, first I would just say that I think people need to be really aware. Maybe I'm very aware because I just finished watching a, 
Noam Chomsky kind of masterclass series uh, uh, the other day. And, you know, um, a lot of these messages about we shouldn't pay for things that don't have a positive return, uh, those messages were crafted in focus groups that, yeah, you know, people thought, okay, that seems like a reasonable thing for a business to be saying. I can agree with that. And, you know, I'm downtown Toronto and that focus group said that was a good message. Well, I go to a restaurant and there's napkins on the table. Are they getting a positive return on the napkins they put on the table? So what I'm trying to say with that kind of silly example is that all businesses have costs of doing business. And the polluter pay rule is something I think is sacrosanct. And uh, when I was advising Minister Carr and there was opportunity to lean in um, on, on addressing abandoned wells, you know, one of the things I said to him is I think it's a polluter pay rule and it's a principle that we should not be violating. You know, people took out licenses on these wells, understanding that they would have to reclaim them back to uh, regulated standards at the end of life. And those that haven't done it, um, you know, I like what the AER has done in increasing things like mandatory minimums. We just participated, um, or we will be participating here at Kuitno in the government, uh, the Alberta Utilities Commission's uh, inquiry on what should be done with solar reclamation. And, you know, these things should be uh, fully funded. You know, they said, should we make solar reclamation, uh, you know, so that it's on par with oil and gas? And our response is it should be better than oil and gas. Uh, you know, it should be. You don't want to be worse than oil and gas because oil and gas is terrible. These these liabilities need to be fully funded over the project life cycle. You know, you uh, my my boss here at Kuitno has a great uh, Pat Carlson and uh, just a, a wonderful uh, Alberta entrepreneur. And he puts it very well. He's like, I save for my retirement, so we should be saving for our assets, assets retirement. Okay, uh, Mike. Mike is being dropped over here in the studio. I I have to say that because Pat is a is a legend in the industry. He's a forward thinker and he's very innovative, and and I'm not surprised that he he thinks like that. And he's probably one in a million. Well, not one in a million. One in, he, there aren't many Pats in the in the Alberta industry. But I want to make a point uh, for our listeners here who haven't read part two. The where governments all over North America, including Alberta, struggled uh, in the early days, have struggled since the early days of the industry 100 years ago. Where do you take security against future environmental liabilities? The obvious place would be at the beginning of the life cycle. When you drill that well, you make sure that there's a bond or there's cash or there's something against the future liabilities 10 20 you know five how many years down the road yeah no regulator in north america did that because that would was was perceived to be an impediment to the growth and profitability of the industry everybody wanted jobs and capital and government revenues and they put that as a higher value than collecting security at the beginning so once you've made that decision everything else is downstream of it like okay now where do you put it do you yeah. do you wait until do you wait until the do you do you take security or do you you force the the oil and gas company to do it when at the end of the well's life? Well, then the the argument comes back. Well, yeah, but if you do that, you're going to bankrupt us. We haven't got enough cash, and so and so this got this has been a mess from day one in Alberta, and now because the liabilities are so huge, now it's become a crisis. 
It's gone beyond just something that we can kick down the can down the road. It's become a crisis. And I'm really pleased to hear that Pat gets it. And so maybe this is a good time for you to talk about Kuwait now and what makes it different. Yeah, you know, uh, you 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 nailed it with Pat. Pat is, they, they broke the mold. I don't think there was anybody uh, before or will be anyone like Pat after Pat. Uh, he's just such a unique thinker. Um, and Quitno is the product of his vision uh, to create an energy transition company and to do so in a very pragmatic way. Uh, as we talked about, he knows that the in order to be profitable, you should be sustainable. But in order to be sustainable, you have to be profitable. You have to attract investment. So today we are a natural gas uh, and light oil producing company, tiny, inconsequential almost, uh, in that regard, we're in about 20,000 barrels a day equivalent. And, uh, but more consequentially, we've got about two gigawatts worth of power projects, both solar renewable and natural gas fired with CCUS uh, at different points in the Alberta regulatory um, queue. And we've got two in particular that we're seeking to take a final investment decision on in 2024. And the vision that Pat has is to uh, integrate the natural gas uh, supply, you know, probably, you know, volumetrically, not molecularly, in, from our natural gas assets, where we've aggressively, aggressively also uh, been reducing methane. We're going to reduce our vented methane, so tacking our scope one emissions, uh, reduce that by 50% by the end of next year. Uh, we're going to integrate that natural gas production into our natural gas fired power projects. We're going to capture the carbon. Um, from that, hopefully achieve about a 90% capture rate and address the scope three emissions from the natural gas business while producing cheaper and cleaner power for Albertans. Uh, he'd like to capture about 10% of the Alberta power market and introduce a strong new competitor to deliver more affordable electricity to Albertans in this market-driven system. So he's got a vision and a plan and uh, our job is to execute. And it's... Uh, being a part of a smaller company in this stage stage of growth and this um, speed of growth is very exciting and very challenging. So if I understand this correctly, the company now is, is oil and gas focused in its production, its revenue generation, but it's trying to do it sustainably so that you're, you've got CCS attached to the hydrocarbon extraction part of the process while developing wind and solar and, and I think even if I remember correctly, my conversations with you, even some hydrogen uh, yeah. that might be in the, in the future. So you're, you're kind of a, when you say an energy transition company, you're actively on the ground grappling with, okay, we're going to, we're going to start over here with the hydrocarbons, but we're already working towards clean energy. And eventually at some point you'll probably transition more or less to the clean energy as opposed to the hydrocarbons. Yeah, well, I mean, let's and it's it's ever thus. I mean, you can only attract capital to the safe bets um, that we've got in the energy transition. And the next uh, thing to commercialize and make a safe bet will be CCS, especially given that we're really well positioned here in Alberta. And when I was at Shell, I worked on the Quest project. We've got you know great geological storage space. We've got we're well regulated um, in terms of uh, that space. Uh, so you know it getting. Um, CCS and geological storage on natural gas combined cycle power plants in Alberta is not a stretch of the imagination at all. And then looking at opportunities around blue hydrogen or other technologies that seek to, you know, use catalysts to 
separate the components of methane into carbon and hydrogen. And then the circular economy of what can we do uh, if you're not burying the carbon underground or sequestering it underground, do we have other commercial uses for, for the carbon in a, in a kind of circular economy sense? So it's exciting. But those uh, safe bets is what, what comes next. We've got to do uh, the safe bets before we can do the, the wild guards. Fair enough. And uh, I interviewed a fellow named Donnie Bobasell. And Donnie, I think, was probably more like Pat. You know, he he was he and his, his his management team had started up oil and gas companies over the you know decades. He's a veteran oil guy, and he was now uh, head of or I think he was chair of the board uh, the board of a company called Innova Hydrogen. And that what mm -hmm. your comment about you know uh, catalysts that knock off the carbon atom out of that that's what they were. It, it's methane pyrolysis. And so you, you know, the, you got four hydrogen atoms and a carbon atom and you knock off the carbon atom and there you go. And you don't, you don't have to take, it doesn't take a lot of, of energy to do that and better than blue hydrogen. I think they call it turquoise hydrogen. Plus you, you've got now this carbon that you may be able to, to sell as well. And one of the things that I want to ask you this question, do you see, foresee a future where something like methane pyrolysis can be integrated into power generation so that you know hydrogen uh hydrogen can be used in place of natural gas uh it can be stored in 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 salt caverns or storage caverns of which there are many in Alberta and they can and it can be integrated with wind and solar so that the, the store you know the storage uh hydrogen essentially becomes long a form of long term long duration storage for the electricity system. Is that where you're going? That is, I don't think anyone knows where we're going, but those options should all be on the table. And let's look at the commercial merits and the energy uh, density merits of, of each of these and the efficiency of these and you know, create the environment. And I think what we've done in the past where you and I have talked before where Alberta has differentiated in the past is that we've been a place where the Pat Carlson's of the world can be successful because we say, we love innovation. We love people who have a have an entrepreneurial spirit and uh, can can you know build teams and attract some investment to to get things going. And you know whether it was the oil sands way back in in the Aostra or the Declaration of Oil Sands Opportunity Days, you know we've shown huge. We have a huge track record in this province of 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 thinking uh clearly about how to open the the gates for uh entrepreneurial success and innovation and i do worry that you know because we're so polarized around this thing called the energy transition that we might stall out simply because we think it's not the idea um, that we think that you know by letting go of the oil and gas sector or or moving to things like hydrogen um, CCS that we're letting go of the oil and gas sector as if that's kind of our choice. And it's not our choice. The, the, the world and the markets are going to move on at a pace around us. And I get deeply concerned that not only do we need to keep pace, we need to continue to lead. There and is a, when I, when I, uh, worked in the industry from 2003 to 2005, based out of Calgary, uh, one of the sayings that I heard often was that uh, Alberta, uh, when it comes to oil and gas, is a price taker, not a price maker. Mm -hmm. And I think that that can be applied to the energy transition. You can't stop it. 
the China, the U.S., and Europe now, but particularly China, is going to drive the scale up of the of clean energy uh, industry, like you know, solar panel panel manufacturing and wind mm -hmm. turbine, and and you know, elect, elect hydrogen electrolyzers and heat pumps and all of that. And and the U.S. is hot to catch up to China, and the, U the EU is hot to catch up to the U.S. It's out of it's out of Alberta's control. It has, Alberta has no control. It will be a price taker when it comes, and I don't think that's really appreciated. And, and I I think even in the C suites, it's not appreciated that that Alberta is going to be dictated to on this, and markets will dictate it. What's your take? Yeah, it's, you know, um, one of the greatest challenges we have and really where we started this conversation is how do you bring people along? And we're in very challenging times. I, when I talk to younger people um, in the industry, you know, they would reflect that they, when they look at the C-suites of their companies, um, they don't think that the C-suite is in touch with the energy transition. So when younger professionals, and we, we no longer have a petroleum engineering program at University of Calgary, um, so that tells you something about the sentiment for the future around, um, and we're, you know, again, we're getting, we, I believe we will continue, of course, need oil and gas for, for decades to come to meet some of our energy needs, but we cannot be um, so um, risk, you know, risk that high risk takers that we would bet the entire farm, you know, very appropriate for Alberta um, on that, that we would seek to do uh, many other things. And those investments in creating additional value from the, the riches we have that we were given in our geology in this province and that we've got in our people is our next step. I see you as a, a public voice for those professionals within the industry who worry about the energy transition and want to see the industry make the pivot uh, so that it is sustainable into a low carbon future. So if you were to take a wild guess, the folks, the, 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 the folks in the industry that you, whose voice would be consistent with yours, are they 5% of the industry? Are they 50% of the industry? What's your, what, what would be your feeling on that? You know, I think it's way higher than people think. I sat, you know, in sort of a typical Calgary restaurant last Friday with um, two, uh, two people I've known for about a decade. And, you know, we sat around talking about abandoned wells and throwing around, you know, all sorts of ways to get ahead of the problem, we, you know, so right there, you know, I think if I were to put those two two people in front of most, they would say, oh, yeah, those are kind of good old kind of good old oil and gas bros. And uh, you know what? Their thinking is way ahead. So I think Markham, I think it's over 50 percent. I think, you know, people want to solve these issues. They, they want to uh, look at how to change and how to improve the industry. Um, they have ideas. They want to take their years of experience like Pat is doing and apply it to these problems and set up the next generation for success. But, you know, I do think there's um, the power structure in many companies prevents people from being as outspoken as I am. 
I'm, I'm really blessed that I've had the opportunity to, to work for great people who allow me to do these types of interviews and express my views. I'm really glad you mentioned the power structure because I would agree with you that, and, and, and just as an aside for anybody who's listening to this is not from Alberta, but is in Canada and knows Alberta's reputation. When I moved to Calgary in 2000, it is a very metropolitan, uh, moderate place. Uh, I used to have the folks that I, I worked with, they would say, well, I'm a redneck. And I go, dude, I've worked in Texas. You're a pink neck. Maybe. Maybe. It, it's not as it's not nearly as redneck uh, as it's portrayed. And I don't doubt for a moment that you're correct that the, there is that the number the percentage of professionals in that industry who get the energy transition, who get climate change, and would are and supportive of moving, you know, being progressive about that, uh, is over fifty percent. I don't doubt that for a moment. But I also see very clearly the power structure that does that that makes them leery of speaking up. Yeah. That that and and we're not talking about just the CEOs. You know, it's the media. The media in Alberta is absolutely captured. The pol the political class is absolutely captured. And it's very, very difficult to raise a contrarian voice in Alberta, even though there's a huge audience for it, even though the majority of people probably agree with you. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. And the media is, you know, polarized too, so that, you know, I've had the experience of, you know, saying more kind of contrarian or progressive things to really traditional oil and gas media and having, you know, getting text messages or emails, and, you know, immediately from colleagues or friends saying, you know, oh my gosh, what have you done? And then on the reverse side, I've talked to environmentally focused media that literally no one in the industry will uh, talk to. And then I've been roasted by them. And I'm, it's no wonder no one in the industry will wants to speak to any media because there's just no upside. In many cases, you have to be so careful as to what you say. And so for those who are, are speaking uh, out, you know, good, participate in the public discourse and, you know, uh, good. If people tell you they don't like what you have to say, then as long as they can answer a good, you know, get into you about, get with you and talk to you in an intelligent way about why, um, then, you know, then it just turns into this polarization all over again. And what it's a, it's a bun fight. It's a bun fight. I and and ask me how I know. I, I the oil bros uh, on social media and off social media uh, don't like me very much, and that goes from and the oil bros in the C suites uh, all the way down to to the field folks. But I think that the conversation that you and I are having today, Janet, illustrates the kind of rational discussion that is capable uh, around the Alberta oil and gas industry and energy transition and climate change. There, there are things that can be done, that there are options. And if we can somehow expand that kind of rational discussion, we open up the realm of the, possi of the possible. And perhaps more can be done. Well, you know, we just have to stop the, the shouting of people down and I appreciate you and thank you for being part of the discussion, Markham. You and I have had so many conversations like this over coffee, uh, over wine, and just your friendship means a lot to me. And I admire your intellect and I love what you're doing with energy media. 
Oh, you know what? I'm going to edit that. So that's right at the top of the, po the podcast. <laughs> well, thank you for those kind words. And on that note, Janet, this has been a great conversation. We are going to have you back more. We want to hear more about uh, Kuwait Now's uh, business model. And uh, so maybe we'll have you do some, we'll do some videos uh, when I get to Calgary with and interviews with Pat. Pat is, I've interviewed him before. He's a fascinating guy. And I think my listeners and viewers would would really uh, appreciate his thoughts on this. So thank you very much for uh, for the conversation today. We would love that. And thank you. And thanks to everyone for listening.